I'm Carrie Brett, and this is Shot at Love. Today we have a remarkable guest, the one and only Kim Sinatra, who's renowned for her role as the former general counsel and executive vice president at Wynn Resorts in Las Vegas. But Kim's story goes far beyond her professional achievements. In one fell swoop, her life took an unexpected turn, leading her to heart-wrenching breakup with her boss, shattering her long-standing career, and the ending of her marriage. Instead of succumbing to despair, she used the power of forgiveness as a superpower. She'll share how she broke the shackles of her past, refusing to be defined by her circumstances, and how forgiving others and herself, she was able to rewrite a new narrative. Today, she'll share her inspiring journey and how she transformed from feeling like collateral damage to scaling the glass cliff. You won't want to miss it, so stay tuned. Kim Sinatra builds companies and culture, working for gifted entrepreneurs, scaling big ideas, and making things happen. She's been a C-suite executive in industries leading gaming, entertainment, and hospitality companies. She's a trusted advisor to boards and CEOs navigating complicated legal, financial, and expansion issues. More than a lawyer, Kim is a leader in business development, mergers, acquisitions, financing, and governance activities in both private and public companies. She's a founder of Sinatra & Co and the former executive vice president and general counsel for Wynn Resorts, as well as the former executive vice president and general counsel for Caesars Entertainment. What do you think of that? I like it. <laughs> I like your take on it. So you're a synthesizer. I'm a What does that mean? Well, so you took a whole bunch of disparate facts from a story and you figured out what was important to you about that. Right? Right, right. And so you were able to knit it all together in a way, actually, that took for me the really important part. The emphasis on forgiveness is one that you figured out. Right. I don't think it's ever the one that I lead with. Um, you had asked me, as I recall, what were the important parts or the inflection points of my story of recovery and reimagining my life. And I think I gave you a whole litany of crazy stuff, including forgiveness. But I think that you're honing in on it was really prescient of you and observant of you. Oh, I that's so that. nice. Well, you know, what you did say to me is you said that you found this book the book of forgiving, and you bought it for everyone you knew for Christmas. I did. And it really meant a lot to you. So I, I thought to myself, I've never really covered forgiveness, and there must be something really powerful around that. And when I started to research it, I learned that there isn't really a lot of information around how to forgive, and it's quite powerful. I am so excited Get ready, everyone, to be so captivated today and get ready to learn a lot about survival. So, Kim, we were able to spend some time together and we both learned a lot around the power of connections. And one of your greatest teachers around the value of having meaningful conversations and the power of relationships you learned during your time working for Merv Griffin. Tell us what you learned from him. I learned a lot about joy and love but I really learned about listening. One of the amazing things about Merv is that he had incredibly famous and powerful people on his show, but it was never really about him. 
he created an atmosphere where people became real, where they told him their stories, where they had fun, where they got vulnerable. And it showed the audience a different side of those people. And it was really, to use your word, it was a real superpower of his. And what an amazing space that he could create to allow people to go there. It's difficult to talk about things that didn't work out. It's really, really difficult. And let's think about it even more. You know, Merv has been dead probably for 10 years. But, you know, he carried a very, very deep secret for a long time, right? We Many people know now that he was a gay man in Hollywood. But for a long time, that was a career ender. We learned that about Clive Davis in the Whitney Houston movie. I called all my friends. I was like, who the heck knew that Clive Davis was gay? I didn't. Who the heck knew that Whitney Houston was gay? I didn't. Think of those people carrying around this huge secret that was part of their essence. And then think about being able to create space for people to unburden themselves. He never had that luxury during his lifetime. So it was fascinating to me to see and to witness the sort of kindness and empathy and real curiosity. You have to have curiosity about people. But, you know, I think because he had so much pain, he was able to guide people to talk about their pain. I think you're right. I think that's another incredibly insightful observation that you have about people. And I think you're right. Well, let's talk about your journey. What I love about you is that no matter what you've gone through, you still remain to look at the world in a positive way. And you always felt there was an abundance of opportunities. Did you start your career on Wall Street in the 80s? I did. So I went to the University of Chicago Law School. I really didn't know anything about being a lawyer or being in the finance business. I come from a very, very small town in western New York. My father was a doctor, so there was nobody who was like a business person. I'm still horrified by the uh, sights and sounds of hospitals, so I knew I couldn't follow in dad's dad's footsteps. So I graduated from law school. I actually moved to Miami at first because I was desperately interested in being a real estate lawyer. And Miami in 1985 was where it was happening. I went there for two years. I actually felt like a total fish out of water. I didn't have any family. I didn't really make friends culturally. It just wasn't my place. I couldn't find my place. So I hightailed it right back to the Northeast that where I felt comfortable. And I ended up in New York City. So yes, I started working for a California-based law firm in New York in 1987. You were married briefly early in your life, and then you get remarried from someone you know from law school. You have three children. And it's the early 2000s, and and this leads you to Las Vegas. Tell us about that. That's my 9-11 story, really. I was married. I had three little children. My youngest son was born in 1999. I was working in New York 
and I was traveling extensively. In fact, I was on an airplane on the morning of 9-11. Luckily, my, my flight safely landed in Chicago that day, and other people weren't quite so lucky. In the summer of 2001, a mentor of mine had gone first to L.A. and then to Las Vegas, where he became the CEO of what's now Caesars Entertainment. He had called me in the summer of 2001 and said, hello, I am running a big public company. I need a general counsel, and I would like you to join me. And I was like, Tom, you know, I love you, dude. But the idea that I would leave my beautiful perch in New York City to live in Las Vegas is laughable. That will never, ever happen. Fast forward, 9-11 happens. 18 people, including my next-door neighbor from my town, no longer come home at night. And I was trying to travel having three little kids. I was so terrified every single day. I just, yeah, I just couldn't even function. But working was important to me. It was important to our family for a lot of reasons. In October of 2001, I picked up the phone. One of the instances of eating crow in my life. And I said, hi, Tom, it's Kim. (laughs) He said, hi, Kim, what's going on? Um, And I said, remember that offer to come to Las Vegas? And he said, yes. And I said, I think I'm ready now. And he graciously took me in and started a really, really beautiful, beautiful career that I had serving big public companies. And and you told me that you flew high and fast. I did. (laughs) I loved that feeling. You know, it's funny. I went to, the reason I know Boston so well is I went to Wellesley College, and I graduated from there in 1982. And one of the benefits of going to a women's college was that I never really thought about restrictions on my ability to want and achieve anything. I went to work after law school. I didn't really think about my gender. I didn't think about my lack of experience. I just kind of went. We worked really, really hard, but I had amazing mentors, amazing clients. I loved every minute of it. It was exciting, and we worked on important transactions, and we met important people. So yeah, I felt professionally, frankly, from 1985 until 2018, like an eagle. It was amazing. Well, it's incredible. You have a very powerful job. You were one of the early women in the room. This is definitely not the norm, Kim. That is true. And you know, I knew that. I was super cognizant of it. For most of my career, I was alone in the room. I am incredibly grateful to the men in my professional life who gave me opportunity experience. I was lucky enough to be treated very well. The more senior I got, I think I started to notice that maybe I wasn't as welcome. But it was never a big issue for me. It was really important to me always to hire, mentor, and basically love the women in my professional life. I always was surrounded by amazing, amazing people. And they continue to fly like little baby eagles today. That's so great. (laughs) But one of the things you had to do to survive and protect yourself was you had to separate yourself from 
the men that you worked for personally because you had such a big job of managing all this, but you also were a working mother. So you didn't have time. You had to go in and out, be all business. That was what it was about for me. And I noticed that, wow, my first child was born in 1992. I remember leaving him was probably the hardest thing that I ever did. I mean, for years, I literally would cry on the train on the, way, on the way to work. I mean, crazy stuff. But it made me want to get in, get out, do my job. And so I wasn't a big socializer. I actually was a little bit, I don't know if it's afraid, but I had some kind of trepidation around men. Because you can feel sexual tension, you know, you find it in social circumstances. You can find it in professional circumstances. All I knew was I want to stay away from that. I agree. Because it was messy. I have been, notwithstanding, I haven't had one, one incredibly long-term marriage. I was married almost all of my professional life. I had little children who I was raising, and so I was not a socializer. And I made rules. I did not like to travel with my male colleagues. I flew separately if I could. I did not join any dinners unless they were group. And even then I tried to beg off. And I was never one of the let's go to the bar after work and try to, you know, get it on. That never was part of my deal. And I know this myself that any time that I spent that wasn't strictly work would take away from my family. And I wasn't gonna allow that. And I think you grow up really quickly and you think about being a mother first and you make decisions for your family. And, and unless you're a woman in business who's successful, you might not understand some of those choices. You have this incredible career and things started to take a heartbreaking turn. This is where you were forced into a breakup with your boss, your career is now in jeopardy, and it's the beginning of the Me Too movement. This basically could swallow you whole. Well, it did. I'm sure, I'm sure it did. <laughs> it did. I can sort of have a little distance now. It's been five years. But one of the things that I have figured out as I've thought more about my own journey and started speaking with so many women who have very similar journeys is that you kind of think it's not going to happen to you. I showed up every day. Outside lawyers told me, you know, you're one of the best general counsel we've ever worked with. I was so proud of what I had achieved. My kids were proud of me. My parents were proud of me. I wore my success not only for myself, but for women, for my family, for my friends. When things started going sideways... I don't know if it's a sense of denial or disbelief, but in retrospect, I say, when did that ground start cracking underneath my feet? Right. And when did everybody else take a step back? Because that's one of the most heartbreaking things. Because I think as women, we sort of fall in love with our jobs. I still say it, and I don't know if it's popular or unpopular or legal or illegal. I loved the people who I worked with. 
I loved the valet parkers I saw every morning. I loved the lady who served me lunch. I loved my assistant. I loved the people in my department. I did. And I loved them as people. And I kind of thought they loved me back. And when things go sideways, it's like the worst heartbreak you've ever had. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same because your identity was tied up in doing a good job. Of course it was. And you did a great job. I thought so. But you look back and you pick at every single decision that you've made over 25 or 30 years. You say, wow, could I have done a better job? And where did I let myself down or my organization down? When we think about what you're exploring in your work, it's not dissimilar. Right? When we go through heartbreak of whatever ilk, our children break our heart, our boyfriends break our heart, our husbands break our heart, and our jobs can break our heart. It's true. And it's all equally painful. Yes. And I don't think people talk about how painful it is to be forced out of your job. People don't talk about it. And I think that there are many, many reasons, and I guess they're personal to each person who experiences loss is that you have to be kind of vulnerable. And in order to get to the top of the cliff or the top of the hill, vulnerability is something that women and other outsiders hold within themselves because you are not allowed to be vulnerable. You better darn well know the answers to all the questions. You better not cry at work. You better not have any weakness when you are ridden off into the sunset. Sometimes it's the same. So explain to the listeners exactly what happened because you were blamed for something that you didn't do. Correct. And Brene Brown tells us all about that. When Brene talks about guilt, which is I did something bad, shame, I am bad humiliation. I am being ascribed something bad that I didn't do. And what was really hard for me is that I knew I would never go along with, quote unquote, decades long abuse of women. No chance, no shot. I am not perfect, but there's certain black and white stuff that just doesn't, just doesn't fly with me. I agree. <laughs> and anyone who knows me would be like, yeah, that's one thing that's not going to happen with that girl. Notwithstanding that, for me, the hard part was it was public. So there was people in newspapers writing articles. I would walk into a room and I actually watched women, by the way, nudge each other with their elbows and say, that's her. I was taken aback. Because one thing I've learned through my journey is that empathy, give that darn person a hug. Because you never know what is going on inside their head. And kindness when people are down is really important. Because they're not very kind to themselves usually. (laughs) On a recent interview... You said everyone was your friend when you were at the top of the world. And you learned who your real friends were and what happens when someone's on the outs. This is the time you need to reach out. 
That is exactly right, and it's funny because when I was doing the work for my own podcast on scaling the glass cliff, I realized that I actually fell off the cliff once earlier in my career. When I first went to Las Vegas, I was working for a company and, you know, was doing poorly because it was tourism post 9-11. The CEO, who was my friend, was removed from his position. And a few months later, I was removed from mine as well. It was a little less direct than that, but the facts don't matter. It's that he went and I went shortly thereafter. That's when I first learned the lesson that sometimes it's really just transactional for people. I don't know. I felt like people were more genuine in their relationships. And so that was the time that I first learned when I needed to find a new job that a lot of people who were, pardon my French, kissing my ass when I had work to give out didn't return my phone calls. So that can make you angry, but what it really does is just breaks your heart. How great would it be to find the love of your life, the man of your dreams? Do you believe online dating would work if you had the right tools to be successful? Well, I have exciting news. I've created your best shot at love masterclass. I cannot wait to share with you what's worked for me in my life and for many of my clients that have helped over the years. If you enroll in this class, you have a winning mindset and believe in getting help before you start something new. If you're ready to see changes in your dating life and want to take action, check out my free webinar at shotatlove.co. If you decide you're going to choose another path, that you're worth it and you're willing to enroll in the masterclass, you can also register at shotatlove.co. I designed this masterclass specifically for you to be successful. Please know that everything you're going to learn in these nine modules and six coaching calls has been carefully curated for you so you can gain the success you truly want. I will be there for you the whole time. In the meantime, I wish you all the success and I can't wait to hear about your story of finding love. I'm Carrie Brett and I will be your mentor and friend through this incredible journey. It's really hard to say, where are my friends? I'm hurting. I'm there for everyone. And then you're left isolated. And that's when you can really go down the rabbit hole. That's when the dark stuff happens. Right. That's when you say, like, bourbon and cigarettes. <laughs> yes. That's when you say, I, I really don't know what to do. That's when you say, I don't know if I can do this anymore. All of that darkness, I think people have been hesitant historically to talk about that, too. I agree. And I think that now, because we're in such a crisis of a, um, mental health, in our country and probably around the world that has many different reasons, COVID, climate change, war, whatever it is. We're all kind of nuts, right? And so people are willing to talk a little bit more about that. Because they're so desperate. They're so desperate. And there's all sorts of types of heartbreak happening. And now we've gotten to the place where we can't live in autopilot anymore and we can't keep compartmentalizing this forever. Because like you say, the body keeps score. So you learned by getting vulnerable and sharing and going to things like a breakup boot camp. <laughs> Tell me about that. Oh my gosh, so this is amazing. It's 2018. 
the fissure starts really opening wide in January of that year. I was able to hold on until the summer of that year before the writing was totally on the wall and I needed to get out. So I was negotiated my exit through the summer of um, 2018. During that intervening period, during one of my probably late night, no sleeping internet Google searches, I come across a young woman named Amy Chan who runs a retreat for heartbroken women. I remember reaching out to her. At that time, she was renting a house in the Hudson Valley, and maybe 10, 12 women would pay to come. And it's somewhat like a little bit of group therapy, a little bit of psychic healing, a little bit of tantric dancing, resident dominatrix, like all kinds of girl stuff, right? Which I think theoretically allowed people to get to that place, but to also get to that place with people who were feeling the same. So you could start this healing process from understanding that you weren't alone. So I remember reaching out to Amy and she's like, well, you know, when did you break up with your boyfriend? And I said, well, I kind of have this triple breakup going on. I'm getting divorced from my husband. I broke up with my boss of 15 years, and I just lost my career. It kind of broke up with me. And so I'm, ta- I'm talking the trifecta of breakups, girl. She laughed. It didn't crack the walnut, right? I was a tough bird, right? 30 years of this stuff. But it allowed me to admit to the issue, to find community with other women who were admittedly searching. But I came to realize that you've got to heal yourself before anything else is going to get better. And that's when you found compassion for yourself. It took a little bit longer than that, but ultimately I did. You did. Now you figure it out that you have to have some acceptance, ownership of what's happened, and now you're going to lean into forgiveness. I have. So, and we started talking in our interview about forgiveness. And so the little tiny book that I bought is by Desmond Tutu and his daughter. It's this little skinny thing you can buy, paperback you can buy on Amazon. It's a four-part guide toward forgiving. Now, by the way, South African black people have really big stuff they got to forgive people for. What they were working on is forgiving people for murdering them, right? And their families. And I was like, well, that's kind of not the same. You know, I'm sitting in my house in Las Vegas, and I'm getting all heartbroken about my darn job. So does this apply to me? But I kept, and she persisted. So I kept reading it. And the key, I always knew, because I had read, so intellectually I knew, That forgiveness is the key to your freedom. As long as you hold the grudge, as long as you're angry, as long as you blame, you will live in the prison of your own brain. You will be a victim. You will not be able to climb out of the hole. It will not happen for you. But I got stuck on the part of forgiveness that I believed let the person who hurt me off the hook. The magic of Tutu's book for me was you have to name the hurt, you have to tell the person who hurt you, you have to forgive them for hurting. But here's the magic for me. I got to choose 
do I want to have a relationship with that person or do I know that they have no place in my life? I was able to forgive people who I believed or circumstances who I believed had really, really hurt me by saying, here it is, admitting to the hurt, granting the forgiveness, but by the way, you have no place in my life. And frankly, not very many other people's lives either. But giving yourself the power, because remember where you get stuck with grief and you get stuck with blame, is feeling that you have no power. Until you take back your power and know your strength and know your soul, you're going to be stuck. Or you're going to repeat the pattern until you learn. Over and over and over again. Right. That's why retaliation leads to more pain. You don't get even. You just continue to suffer. That's right. And if you want to get out of suffering, you've got to find a way to forgiveness. Yes. You feel bad for people who live a lifetime suffering. You do. But the thing that they need to know and really accept is they have the power. And only they. And you've got to fight for it. We don't have to stay stuck in our story. You had to get to a point of letting go the story of being someone who's heartbroken. Right. But I still get to own it. When people say, is it over? Are you done? I mean, one of the things that I shamed myself with is, Kim, it's like a year. It's two years. It's three years. It's four years. Like, what the heck? Are you kidding me? Get over it. Right. And I think that's the conversation people have when they have romantic loss, when they have loss of children, like, come on. And I had a most amazing woman on my podcast who, when I asked her what she wishes that people took from her experience of losing her career and her 20-year journey of recovery. She said, I want them to discard the cultural canard that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It sucks. It just does. And you got to own that it does. And you have to not need it to not suck. As long as you resist the loss, you resist the hurt, you resist all that stuff, it's going to continue to grow. As soon as you say, you know what? That did hurt my feelings. It did make me angry. You guys kind of stink. And I am hurt. Being able to admit that is the key to turning the corner. Interesting. And it is a process. And that's where you have to be patient because it is all those stages of grief. And guess what? It doesn't go only in one direction. You know, it's a two-step forward, one-step back, right? Now, this leads you on a journey to this book and podcast. And it came about during COVID. And you started to help people who were doing a lot of things that they haven't done before. And in the process of helping others, you learned about this scaling the glass cliff theory Tell me about this. So the glass cliff was named back in 2005 by two researchers in um, the UK. And the phenomenon, if you Wikipedia it, is a little bit narrower than I like to talk about it. But at its core, the glass cliff talks about opportunities given to mostly women. But my thinking and my experience tells me that gender, race, sexual orientation, 
all kinds of otherness is the same. So fill in the blank. We'll use women just for purposes of talking, but I think it's the application is quite broad. Is that women are given chances to maybe take um, a CEO position or get a position of power in a circumstance where an organization may be in crisis, at risk. The thinking goes, oh, maybe we need a different skill set. Maybe if someone looks different, they'll do it differently. Maybe they'll help us. And when they get there, the problem turns out to be so intractable that they can't solve it either. So the white guy who came before them couldn't solve it. They can't solve it. And then they get fired. And everyone says, see, that incompetent girl, we knew she couldn't do it. She wasn't prepared. She wasn't smart enough. She wasn't hardworking enough. She wasn't creative enough. Fill in the blank. They fall off the cliff. And what happens when you fall off the cliff is a little bit worse than just losing that position. When others start falling off the cliff, the people who put them there step back. So instead of the boys club where everyone says, hey, he, it's not his fault, you know, there was a bad problem and he couldn't fix it and no one could have fixed it and 47 people before him didn't fix it. That's not what happens because the doubt that is in the back of everyone's mind, I didn't, I thought she might not be up for it, right? I didn't know if she could do it. So all of a sudden that person is without those sponsors, that person probably because maybe they were a mom. They don't have the same network and they don't have the same support. And they weren't ever allowed to admit they didn't know anything. So they don't have a a kitchen cabinet. They don't have whatever. So they fall off the cliff in a way that usually means they don't get paid and they have an awfully hard time getting a new job or getting a new position. Like we find, I'm going to go back to Virginia, who was my very desired first guest because she had been the chief of staff to two consecutive Massachusetts governors. She's the head of Massport. She goes through the 9-11 gig. She loses her position. Getting a new job was almost impossible. She gets a job as a, as a journalist, which lasts for a little while. Then she goes on and she works in government relations for a pharma company, and she's very recently retired. But guess what? That wasn't the trajectory that that girl was on when th- at 36 years old, she was the head of Massport. You would expect her to be the president by now. And so I see it over and over again, whereas the traditional candidate, he bombs out of a place, whatever, you know, he generally recycles and he shows up again and generally advancing his career all along the way. That doesn't really happen for women and other outsiders. And so do you think it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy where a lot of people start to doubt and that doubt then just kind of steamrolls? Of course it does. Because I don't believe so much in this whole imposter syndrome idea, right? But I do believe that people who are firsts may have a nagging thing in the back of their head. Did I deserve it? Was I good enough? And so when it goes away, oftentimes that negative self-talk it gets really loud. And if you're talking about romantic relationships, maybe he was too handsome. Maybe he was too successful. Maybe I never deserved it. And you go through cataloging all the negative energy about yourself. And that's where you become collateral damage. Correct. So you started to see that this was repeating patterns. I did. And if we have the information and the skill set, 
that we can pull ourselves out quicker. So I think that this work, if I really get to where I want to, has a lot of different benefits. The first is, if people read my little tiny book, they know what to look out for. They know that it's happened to other people. They know where to get resources, and they know how to rebuild. So it doesn't take so long. Maybe it doesn't take 20 years. Maybe it takes, you know, 20 months. And so it becomes normalized. Having the conversation eliminates so much pain. The people I talk to, I must tell you, Carrie, they feel like so unburdened because the idea and the aloneness and the isolation that that heartbreak brings them, it's almost too much to bear for people sometimes. It is too much to bear. Yeah. And the other thing that I really think we can do is I want to come at this not shaming organizations or white guys or the patriarchy. It's like, hey, you people, you don't know how to do it. Be patient. Withhold judgment. Hang tough. You know, is, is I think that we solve a lot by being a little less judgmental, a little less quick, a little bit more willing to understand, a little bit more willing to lend resources. Instead of say, walking in the office and say, you must have screwed this up, how about tell me about what we can do? What are the solutions? Right. And so this is where it does come down to relationships and how that deep connection, you can gain more information. And it really kind of is tying up with what Merv Griffin taught you. Listen more. Have some compassion. And I love that you said that the arc of the human experience is shockingly consistent. The bottom is going to fall out for all of us. How many times? I don't know. But we've got to stop hiding. We've got to start listening. We've got to pick up that phone. We've got to stop isolating. And you found all these skills to kind of save yourself (laughs) from yourself, right? When all this was happening to you. And you found that all these amazing skills that you had in business were the same skills that you could use that would make you successful in relationships. That's right. You have to bring your whole self to every part of your life. Yeah. And now here you are with this book and this podcast Where can people learn about this Scaling the Glass Cliff soon-to-be-coming podcast or find out more about you? So we have a website, www.scalingtheglasscliff.com. It's relatively rudimentary at the moment, although it's quite beautiful. Thank you, Jennifer Sterling, the beautiful artist who made it for me. The book has my daily attention all summer because I owe it a finished product by the end of the summer. So I'm doing a good job at isolating myself and writing and writing and writing, which I love. The podcast, I have the great honor of doing it with PRX. We are recording some additional episodes and it will drop on the PRX and other major platforms in early November. So great. I love this and I love the concept. I love how this is going to be your life's purpose, and your next chapter. So thank you for sharing your unbelievable story with us today, Kim. Thank you, Carrie. It's been my pleasure. I loved it. And for now, this week, shot at love dating tips that are inspired by our guest, Kim Sinatra. Number one, clear your own decks. 
and make sure you're forgiven. Number two, take the time to excavate yourself. Processing your feelings is essential to starting over. Number three, go find the job, the relationship, and the life that reflects the evolved person that you are. I hope you found some of my tips helpful this week. This is what Shot at Love is here for, to help you find love. Keep up the commitment to yourself and commit to helping someone else by sharing this podcast. Stay safe and stay tuned for more episodes. And if you like this show, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I'm Carrie Brett, and we'll see you next time.